At Creation Ministries International, we take a look at the physical evidence that we see in the world and show how it supports the historical account of the Bible. You are listening to Creation Talk, a creation.com podcast, proclaiming the truth to honor the Creator while providing credible answers. Hello, I'm Scott Gillis. I'm here today with my friend and associate, uh, Dr. Jonathan Sarfati. How are you doing? Yeah, good day, everyone. Good. Well, listen, today we're going to be talking about the Bible, mm-hmm. you know, and of course it's our final authority as, as believers, right? It should be, but whether it is and to a lot of people is another matter, but it definitely should be. Right. And yet there's many that claim that the Bible is not historical, mm. and they'll even specifically say that Genesis was written to be poetic, to be poetry. Well, what do we say to that? Well, I'd say they don't really understand the difference between poetry and potatoes if they think that, because they clearly don't understand what Hebrew poetry looked like. It's not about rhyme or rhythm, but about something called parallelism. All right, well, let's just, for the sake of argument, assume that Genesis might be poetry. We okay. know that's not the case, but just for the sake of argument, if that were the case, what would it look like? Well, we have uh, something in, in the Hebrew Bible which definitely is poetic, and that's the book of Psalms. And also you have the book of Proverbs. But let's look at the book of Psalms, the most obvious one. Yeah, so in fact, I'll even turn here to Psalms uh, chapter 19. It's talking about creation. Mm -hmm. If you don't mind, I'll just read a couple verses here. Sure. All right. So in Psalms 19, verse 1 and 2, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So what are we seeing here that's poetic? Explain that to me. See, Hebrew poetry is not about rhyme or rhythm, but as I said about parallelism, and you you just illustrated that, because parallelism means saying one thing and then saying the same thing using different words. So, for example, where it says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Is that kind of what you mean? Right, the, the, the sky and the heavens mean the same thing, well, or the uh, rakia, uh, or the expanse, depending on what translation you use, but they are clearly the same thing, because uh, the rakia, the expanse, is called the heavens in the book of Genesis. So clearly you're saying, using the same, different words to mean the same thing, and they're both doing the same thing, they're both declaring God's glory, mm-hmm. and day to day and night to night mean the same thing, it means the entire 24-hour cycle, so all the time. So see what I mean about same thing being said but different words, and you look at that all throughout the po- poetic books, you have this parallelism all the way through. So this is what Genesis would look like if it were poetry, but you can read it for yourself. Yeah, it doesn't Nothing sound like that. like that at all. Nothing like it. I know there's one passage that some people might might argue with. Um, I think it's here in Genesis chapter 4, verses mm-hmm. 23 and 4. And there it says, Lamech said to his wife, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Now, that sounds a little like poetry. And I think it really is poetry. Right. But notice this is Lamech bragging to his two wives about how what a big hero he is in killing a young man. 
um, notices the audience is just as too wise, a pretty safe person to bring people to brag to. But the point is, if someone quoted, but you look at the rest of the narrative, it's nothing like that. That's why this stands out as something quite odd. It's clearly something yeah. being quoted. It's not the narrative itself. In fact, it sort of proves the point that yes. it stands out so much as being poetry. It stands in such contrast that it shows that the rest of Genesis is nothing at all like poetry. Not all. Right. Um, going back into Psalms, I remember a verse that you've referred to before in uh, Psalm 104, which actually is dealing with both creation and the flood. So mm -hmm. I'm here in Psalm 104, verses 5 through 9, where it's talking about creation and the flood. It says, He set the earth on its foundation so that it shall never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight, the mountains rose, and the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they may not again cover the earth. Now I hear this parallelism in there. Yes. And since it's talking about creation and the flood, which is where yeah. they get that from Genesis 1.11, then yeah. if God was going to write it poetically, it would sound a lot like that. Well, right? I'd say that uh, Gen Psalm 104, at least the first part of it, is a poetic version of Genesis 1, but also incorporates some things from Genesis 2. So clearly regard them as... Right by the same, the same accounts, not contradictory creation accounts. So Psalm 104 harmonizes those, but clearly that's what it would look like if it was poetic. But Genesis right. 1 doesn't look like that. So clearly, you don't write poetry about poetry. It's a bit redundant. You have poetry written about history. So Psalm 104 is the poetic version. Genesis 1 is the historical version. So, yes. now, for the sake of argument, although yeah. it is the truth, yeah. let's say Genesis was history. Mm -hmm. Well, then what would that look like? Well, again, we have plenty of accounts in the Bible uh, that Noah and disputes were at least intended to be history. And they have a particular pattern of verbs. Like you have a f the first verb is always something called the uh, Carl Perfect. It's a complicated thing. But then you have throughout, you have a type of verb called the Vav Consecutive. It's called the Preterite. Uh, the Hebrew term is Vayitola. That's what you find all throughout the historical books. Okay, you're going to have to explain that to me. Okay. Vav consecutive. Can you kind of explain oh, yeah. that to us? Um, okay, now, see, Vav is a Hebrew letter. It means, on its own, it means and, but when it's tacked onto a verb, it means then, okay? Uh, so if you have a verb like Vayitola, it means then he killed. That's the, the model verb. It says then something happened. You see, it's the verb used to narrate a sequence of historical events. So that's why it's found in historical narrative parts of the Bible. So now let's look, apply this to Genesis. Right. And um, first of all, you have bara. In the beginning, God created this. Bara, the type of verb that's found at the beginning of the narrative. Then you have vayomer, which means, and God said, let there be light. Then, and there was light. And God called it was good. These are all vav consecutives, over 20 of them in the first chapter alone. Just alone, yeah. So, and, and Dr. Stephen Boyd, who's a Hebrew scholar, he actually did a huge analysis of verb patterns in the historical and the poetic books, and he found that Genesis correlated completely with the historical books and not with the poetic books, with a, a probability of point. 9999497. Now, one is certainty, zero is a possibility to give you an idea. So, it's almost a certainty that this is meant to be a historical narrative. So, clearly, from a literary standpoint, 
Genesis's history, hands down, the odds are, are, are not just in favor, but they're certain that exactly. that's the case. And yet so many people that, that do believe, somehow they believe the Bible is authoritative, yes. but they still take that position. Why do you think so? Well, I think the only reason they could possibly take it is because they're intimidated by uniformitarian science, which is basically saying that there wasn't a flood in the past, so we have to go to slow and gradual changes, and therefore the Earth must be millions of years old to explain the rocks and fossils we see. So when you look at the Christian scholars who want to say Genesis is not does not mean what it says, often they will admit it certainly looks like six yeah. literal days, it certainly looks like 6,000 years, a global flood, but it can't be that way because of science. So it must be something else. It must not be history. It must be poetry. So they force that paradigm on the text. Yeah, if you go to a previous episode where Gary Bateson talked about Hugh Ross, uh, he wants to say the days of creation were billions of years long. Okay, that's one era where we dealt with that. And this is another way of trying to fudge the obvious facts of Genesis by saying it's not really meant to be history. And I know we've often talked about how the New Testament authors, and even Jesus himself, when they're referencing the Old Testament, <clears throat> which is quite often, right? Yeah. But they see it as historical. They don't see it as any kind of metaphor or poetry, right? Well, a lot of examples, and I think uh, there's a future uh, video that I think you're doing with uh, our New Testament specialist, Lita Cossa, on this very thing, and she knows what she's talking about in that area. But just a, a few things to, to mention, uh, when Jesus talked about marriage, he goes to Genesis 1, and 2.24, and clearly regards this as a historical narrative, the basis of, of a man-woman marriage. He goes to the flood as a warning, as a future judgment, that the flood was real, Noah was real, the ark was real. And in fact, every time the New Testament authors refer to Genesis, they clearly take the people as historical, the time frame as historical, even the order of, of events as historical. They're clearly not treating it as mythological. It's clearly treated as historical. So if Jesus and those New Te Testament authors took it as historical, well, <laughs> we should be doing the same thing. I mean, sure, yeah. isn't the Christian a follower of Christ? And that should mean following him in his belief about Genesis. I can't see how you can say it any other way. I mean, maybe I'm not saying you're not a Christian if you don't believe it. Uh, take Genesis literally, but I think you've got a problem because you're going against, against what Jesus himself said. Yeah. It reminds me of, of a passage in the New Testament in mm. uh, the third chapter of John, which, mm -hmm. of course, people... Uh, quote John 3.16 all, all the time. But here, just a few verses earlier, mm -hmm. when Jesus is addressing Nicodemus, he said, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Mm -hmm. And of course, Genesis is dealing with not only earthly things, but really the creation of the world. Mm -hmm. Exactly what he did historically. And when we don't believe him there, Mm. It makes us question the rest of the Bible and the gospel, and right? Doesn't it also affect how you go about witnessing? Because if the skeptic you're talking to sees you don't really believe the Bible in Genesis, he might ask, well, when does God start telling the truth? Yeah. Why should I believe him about the stories of Jesus rising from the dead? Because that goes against science too, doesn't it? Right. And so that opens the door to not only uh, to question all kinds of other doctrines that are firmly in the Bible. And that's kind of happening in the church today, isn't it? Oh, it's been happening for over 100 years. That when they abandon Genesis, the next generation abandons a lot of New Testament truths, even right. going so far as to, to reject the resurrection. Right. And isn't that what Jesus told that, uh, that rich man and Lazarus and, and 
Jesus quoted Abraham saying, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, right. they won't be convinced by someone rising from the dead. We've seen that. Yes. In the liberal cemetery, I mean seminaries. <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot of uh, sections on our website where you can learn more about this idea of about is Genesis history. Some of the search words you could do is just that, is Genesis history. Mm. We also have an article entitled, Yes, Genesis Really Is Historical Narrative. And Genesis means what it says. I'd also like to let you know mm. that Dr. Sarfati here actually made a, a DVD, a video called Six Days Really. It's going to go into details. And of course, your book, Genesis Account, here, it's going to go into more detail than you even knew existed on this very subject. And of course, the Genesis Academy DVD series that accompanies it. Oh, you're the first speaker on that, aren't you? I'm one, and you are? Yeah, we have quite a bit of people on there. So please subscribe to our podcast. As Dr. Safadi mentioned, there's going to be a subsequent episode where we're going to talk about how the New Testament authors, and even Jesus himself, believed that Genesis was history. So thanks for watching creation.com talk and we'll see you next time.